Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. There we go. By the miracles of modern technology, welcome once again to the Our Man in Stockholm podcast, a podcast about journalism, about media, and about the utter fuckery that is technology for the most part. Uh, it took a pandemic for me to get the next guest on because we've been trying for a very long time uh, to talk to this man. He's uh, the most famous Englishman in Spanish football, and indeed, I would go as far as to say he's the only uh, journalist writing about Spanish football. No, none of the rest matter at this stage. Sid Lowe, how are you this morning? Um, I, I I don't know how to answer that question. Now, obviously, <laughs> at this stage, I, I, I would normally say, yeah, fine, thanks, how are you? But, of course, this situation is quite bizarre, and it's bizarre in a way that doesn't necessarily mean that you feel dreadful about anything. Um, and, and, you know, health-wise, touch wood, and I'm looking desperately now for something wooden around me. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not so bad, but it is kind of odd, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I've had this, uh, you know, that Billy Bragg song, "Waiting for the Great Leap Forwards," in my head for the yeah. last while, because you know everything is basically paused. So you will be known to to viewers and listeners as somebody who is permanently on the road, who is always at a game somewhere, who is always up to something, and yet you're telling me that you're sitting at home in Spain this morning, not wearing any trousers so far. Is that correct? No, well, that's not entirely correct. Um, <laughs> I'm going to def- I'm going to defend myself slightly here and say I've been making an effort to to try and create a, a normality, and and actually, I mean, you know. No one would ever claim I was a, a master of sartorial excellence or anything like that. But, but I've been trying very hard to dress well, and I, by which I mean wear some trousers. Um, you know, I've been trying very hard. To, you know, as you can imagine, the, the, the millions of WhatsApp groups that are incredibly active over the last few days. And lots of people saying, well, let's face it, we're all sitting here in jogging bottoms if we're wearing any bottoms at all. Um, and no, I'm trying to get dressed. I'm even wearing a shirt today, would you believe? Um, although I was, thinking, I was thinking the other day, I did think to myself, you know what would be a good idea? would be to wear a different football shirt every day. And obviously because of the job I do, um, and also because of just being a football fan, I suppose I've got quite a lot of football shirts knocking around, which in truth never really get worn. Yeah. You know, they just go in a drawer. And I thought maybe I should wear a different football shirt every day because it's not like I'm going to work as such. So it kind of doesn't matter that I'm wearing a, a slightly ill-fitting kind of nylon or polyester shirt. And also, if I wore a different one every day, it might help me to know what day it is, um, because <laughs> otherwise, I mean, what day is, is it? Tuesday today or is it Wednesday? I, I just don't care. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there is that, there is that. But there is, like, I mean, at least when we have the football season, you have things like days, because, like, Tuesday will be Champions League day, Wednesday will be Champions League day, and that kind of thing, but that's all gone completely out the window. But this has affected your life pretty massively, because you do spend, I mean, how many days a week would you normally spend travelling, Sid? Oh, loads. I mean, you know... The other day, I I, I I did a note. Well, I did a note. I started calculating, and I worked out that um, I'd been to 122 games this season. And obviously, this is now you know the the, the, the shutters have come down in March. We don't know whether it will restart. Um, and now, look, obviously, I'm not going to claim that all of those have work. A lot of those are games that I go to either because I want to or I go to because a friend is playing or I go to because my son would like to go, all those kind of things. Mm. Um, but, yeah, an awful lot of football. And, and I've, you know, I, I have this conversation with people a lot who, who, who say, you know, you needn't go to these games. And, and, and obviously, in some cases, you don't need to go to the games. But I always feel that if, if you are going to do not necessarily do it properly because I think you can do good good reports off TV games and some of the best pieces I've written I'm sure will have been off games that that I've seen on the telly and not actually been able to be in the stadium because of course one of the other things that happens and you know you'll notice now I'll start going off on tangents and I'll try and come back at some point but one of the things that happens when you're someone like me who who essentially covers you know most journalists have a patch right so you might be the Manchester guys you've got City and United or you might be the Liverpool guy you've got Liverpool Everton you might do a couple of the London clubs. But essentially, my patch is an entire country mm. and an entire country where obviously every weekend in the first division, there are 10 games. And so every week you're sort of 
you're, you're kind of gambling. You're sort of taking a bet on things each week. Where might the good story be? Which game might be the most exciting? And obviously my definition of exciting is sometimes different to other people's. You know, I'm the kind of person who will be intrigued by two very poor teams slugging it out to try and avoid relegation rather than necessarily the two best teams at the top playing each other. And so every week you're, you're and, and I'll try and bring this back in a second, every week you're, 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 you're try, kind of taking a, taking a gamble and sometimes you get it wrong. So sometimes that does mean that you've done your two or maybe three games or whatever it is that weekend and you get back and you sit down on a Sunday night and you sit on the sofa and a Sunday night game is the best by miles. And you're right about that. So maybe you haven't been at the game. And maybe that can lead you to thinking, actually, I don't need to go to all these games. Maybe I should just watch these on the telly. And obviously, if you're just sitting at home on the telly, in a way, you can see all of the games better. Mm. Although what I always do is I always set the thing to record all of the games in case there's one I miss while I'm travelling. And that turns out to be the great one. And it gives me the chance to watch it again and write about it, watch it in full rather than just highlights. Um, but of course it's still not quite the same because you have a lack of access because your eyes are only trained upon what the TV will allow them to be trained upon because you don't maybe have a feel for a stadium or a club or a group of fans. And so even if, let's say for argument's sake, and I think the last game I did was, who did Betis play on a Sunday night a few weeks ago? Was it the Real Madrid game? I think it was the Real Madrid game. Betis played Real Madrid on a Sunday night. I wasn't there. But I still felt when I was writing it that, I was kind of better equipped to write it because I have been at Betis this year, because I have followed them around, because I have spoken to some of these people, because there are people who obviously, and this is something which is being reinforced through this through this lockdown, there are people who I can get on the phone to, and even if they don't want to talk publicly, will maybe tell me something about, you know, even if it's just like a little anecdote about what was said before the game or something like that that you can hang the, the, the thing on or you can get some insight in. And in particular, because I... I'm very conscious, and maybe this is this might sound horribly pompous, and I'm very sorry if it does, um, or, or horribly overblown. But I'm conscious that in a way, I'm not just writing about football. I'm, I'm sort of trying to write about Spain mm. and, and about people, really. And, and fundamentally, I, I, I kind of think that that football writing at heart is is interesting. I mean, maybe maybe this is just my view on it, and other people have other things that attract them to football writing. But I fundamentally think that football writing is interesting because of the people and because of the emotions involved. Mm. Well, I think that the biggest mistake we often make uh, as as writers about sport and that kind of thing is to think that it is the sport itself or the performance itself that's important, when in fact mm. that's usually the least important thing about it. Because what sticks out uh, for me about your journalism is the way that I have learned more about Spain through you than I have, you know, in, I don't know how many years I went to school in Ireland, but, you know, I learned more about Spain and Franco and the dictatorship and all these kinds of things through reading what you wrote, not just in your in your newspaper pieces, but also in your books. And the other thing that you were mentioning there, which is very interesting, is that, like, I tend to go to a lot of games here in Sweden. Nobody gives a shit about Swedish football for the most part, right? <laughs> but the reason I go to those games is to meet players who eventually will become the Alexander Isak of this world. Of course. Martin Erdogan. Absolutely. And if you haven't done that work, I always love it when I sit behind you in a press conference we did, I think, at one of the World Cup games, uh, one of Spain's World Cup games. And yeah. there's this sort of, you know, when you ask a question in Spanish of Spanish people, they know who you are. And the reason they know who you are is because you have taken all those Tuesday night trips to Betis and to these places long, long before they were ever involved in the national team. So essentially it is, you know, it's shoe leather journalism. You're building up all these uh, contacts long before you ever actually have to use them so that when you do need them, you're able to do that. But could I ask it just to go back a little bit, Sid? Uh, where did you start out? Because there are sort of elements of being a historian to you as well. Is that what you studied or how did you get into journalism? Yeah, yeah I mean, so my, my, my journalism is, um, is, is, is in a way me being in journalism is, is almost an accident. I mean, that, that would be slightly overstating it, but it is almost an accident. And, and Sean Ingle, um, who still works at The Guardian, is, is, is largely responsible for this. And um, so I, I did my degree in history and Spanish um, because I couldn't get funding for a PhD, which is what I wanted to do to start with, which I wanted to do a PhD in, in contemporary Spanish history because I couldn't get funding for a PhD. I did a part-time master's and the funding for the master's came in return for, for doing some teaching. And um, so I was teaching a Southern European fascism course and some Spanish language at Barnsley College, which was linked to the University of Sheffield, which is where I was doing my master's. So I did a two-year master's degree. And during that master's degree, um, I, I was obviously I'd been in Spain for a year, my year abroad during my degree, and I talked to, to friends about how exciting Spanish football was and how it was different. Because of course, in part, 
Spanish football probably isn't massively different to football anywhere else. And, and you know, you were talking about Swedish football. In, in, in many ways, I'm sure, that a lot of these emotional stories, a lot of these human stories, a lot of these players emerging stories, which it fundamentally is what kind of keeps the story renewing. Because in a way, we do write the same thing again and again, just mm. with different characters and different personalities and different timescales, different contexts around them. But that some of those things are probably broadly the same. But I, I remember, you know, talking a lot about how exciting Spanish football was because to me it was exciting because it was kind of a discovery. Because of course I had a, a year in Spain and wow, this is different. And the, the sounds in the stadiums are different and the feelings are different and the noises are different. The kind of things they say, yes, true as well. The way they play the game is different. All of these things. Um, and, and one of those friends that I kind of chewed the ear off about Spanish football was Sean Ingle, who then started working for the Guardian. And when I was doing the Masters, um, when I, so I was still living in Sheffield, but I was spending a lot of time in Madrid, where obviously, as you can imagine, for historical uh, masters, you know, the archives are here, the, the libraries are here, and so on. And uh, and at one point, it was when the Guardian was setting up and starting to do online weekly columns about European football. So they had James Richardson doing Italy. Um, I'm not sure if Raf Honigstein had started that early, but of course they started doing Germany. They did some French football, and they said, would, would, would you fancy doing a weekly thing, just kind of like a little dispatch on Spanish football? And that's kind of where it started. And that stage, I was doing that and the history uh, masters. When the masters finished, which was really just a gateway to getting the funding to doing a PhD, so I started a PhD which, to cut a very long story short, because A, I tend to talk too much, and B, a PhD is by definition a very long story, <laughs> the PhD is broadly speaking um, focused on the construction of a political right wing that becomes fascistized and becomes the social base of the Franco regime. So it's about the causes uh, of the Spanish Civil War, it's about the, the, the building of a mobilization, if you like, of, of kind of right wing popular strength for, for what would eventually become the military coup, eventually become the Francoist regime. It's about that, as I say, those social roots of where the Franco regime, both both socially, soci- sociologically, ideologically, politically, start. And so I'm doing this PhD and I'm doing bits and bobs of football writing because Sean has said to me, why don't you do this thing? And, and it seems the Guardian quite like this column that I was doing weekly. And then I did a first year of my PhD still in Sheffield. And I must confess, I'm now slightly at a loss as to which years we're talking about. I think that's 2000, 2001. And then the second year of PhD, as, as is the case of all PhDs, whether they're historical or scientific or whatever, is is in the field, as it were. Yeah. So the second year of the PhD, I come back to Madrid. It's right, you spend a year in Madrid because all the archives are here, because all the libraries are here, because the newspaper resources are here, and you do that field work, and in theory, at the end of that year, you've gathered all this field work, you've worked through it, and then you come back. And you come back and you write the PhD in the third year, which may well be three and a half years, it may well reach a fourth year, but you come back and you do it. Then in that year, I was because I was in Spain, I was being a bit more proactive in doing some of the football journalism. So I was contacting magazines and, 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 and saying to the Guardian, look, I can do some more stuff for you. I remember going, I think the first interview I ever did in Spain, now I can't remember which way around it was. I think it's Vinny Samways when he was at Las Palmas, yeah. but it might have been Miguel Angel Nadal, who at the time was playing for Mallorca, and Mallorca were playing Arsenal in the Champions League. And I can't remember which one of those two comes first, but it's one of those two. And um, I've got a feeling it's only some ways. And so I started doing bits and bobs more. And, and so the kind of the balance was tilted slightly away from the PhD towards the journalism. But probably, broadly speaking, I was still a student. Then, of course, of course, a whole series of things happen. One is that the, the football writing kind of takes on a pace of its own. The other is that, like any student doing a PhD, you drift a little bit, which you shouldn't, but you do. It's reality. And then the really big thing that happened to me, and, of course, the, the first year I live in Spain permanently is that 2001, is at the end of that year, so it's 2002, we sort of decide, because, of course, at this stage, my, my then-girlfriend, my now-wife, is, is out with me. We were going to come to Spain for you. We said, well, this is quite good, isn't it? And there's no real reason why I have to go back to write. If I've got to go back and it's just to write the PhD, I can do that just as well from here. Um, she had a job here as well. And so we're like, well, this is quite good. Let's um, let's stay, shall we? So I persuaded the university to let me stay. So that brings us to another year, so from 2002 to 2003. And in 2003, and this is the other person I always, you know, I, I've actually seen him since and told him this, you've changed my life, was the arrival of David Beckham. Because the arrival of David Beckham created a huge... Um, increase in interest in Spanish football, obviously seen through David. And, and, and of course, a lot of it was just reporting on David and the fact that he was in Spain was incidental. But one of my kind of, if you like, unwritten battles, and one of the things I didn't say publicly, but in my mind I was very clear on was, yeah, but if I'm going to talk about Beckham, I'm going to use it to talk about Spain. I want this to have more than just, you know, David Beckham yesterday ran up the wing and put a nice cross in. It's it's got to be a sense of how the Spanish are responding to him, how he's responding to Spain. Those bits of Spain that he is experiencing without actually really knowing that he's experiencing it. Because, of course, he's turning up in the city, going to a hotel, 
sleeping a few hours in a hotel, going to a football stadium, scoring a goal, hopefully, and then going home again. But at the same time, I'm going around Spain discovering some of these cities that I didn't know. And so uh, I remember there was, there's a really nice book, actually, by a guy called Alex Leith who came out to follow Beckham around. And it was using Beckham as a vehicle to discover Spain. And I remember spending quite a lot of time with him and speaking to him about him and, and, and saying to him, actually, when he said, I'm going to write this book, saying, oh, you bastard, because in a way, this is exactly what I want to be doing, you know, <laughs> using Beckham as the excuse. But, but he wrote a very nice book about what it is that holds Spain together and how the football is the link between all of these things. And actually, in essence, that's kind of what was, what was going on. And then, obviously, as I say, basically what happens is that the balance tips almost entirely in favour of the journalism because Beckham is genuinely huge. And I learned a huge amount as well because British journalists came out and I learned from them how they did things. Because bear in mind, I've never worked on a news desk in the UK. Mm. Now, I've never been on a paper in the UK. I've worked with papers for in the UK, but from Spain. But I've never been there. And so I learned a huge amount, uh, in particular people like Simon Cass and Eric Beecham. Uh, Eric Beecham, Eric still lives here um, because he's another one who loves Spain and wanted to stay. And, and all right, he's moved out of journalism, but he loved being here. And so, so I, it's just it was a, it was a fantastic education. And I owe those kind of people a huge amount as well. And then sort of balance tips towards journalism. Now, just as a kind of a postscript to all of this, there was eventually a point at which the university said to me, uh, "Where's this PhD?" <laughs> And of course, and of course, at that stage, I was very lucky, and, and for reasons that I don't fully understand, they lost me from their system for a year. They, they that just, may be no bad thing. I, well, it was a perfect thing because it bought me a year. Because basically, well, you've been doing this for four and a half years, but according to the system, I'd only be doing it for three and a half. I can't remember if it was three and a half or four and a half or five and a half. It doesn't mm. really matter. But the point is, they bought that bought me a year, and there came a point when they essentially said, "Right, you've got until I think it was September." 2000 and oof, what year did I write this thing? Five, I think, but I'm not sure. It might have been four um, to write this or you can forget it. And actually, as you can probably imagine, part of me thought, well, forget it. I'm not going to need this for work now. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm established enough that I'm not, not, you know, I'm not making a great living, but I'm making a living and I'm starting to find my feet and I'm starting to find my way here. But then I thought, actually, there's been so much time invested in this. I'm going to do this. And those last three or four months of writing the PhD were, well, much like now, I did not leave the house. Um, mm. But at least I had something to do. I kind of wish I had a PhD to write now. <laughs> yeah, because basically in this time of sort of COVID-19, uh, the match reports disappear. It's very difficult. I know that there's huge media organisations all around the world who are sort of sitting there at the moment going, what are we supposed to write about? I mean, you've already done a lot of that sort of in-depth stuff about history, about certain players and that kind of thing. You know, How do you predict... Say this goes on and there's no more football until the middle of May you know how do you predict uh, you're going to sort of fill your time and is that going to have major sort of economic consequences for you because you're essentially a freelancer right you work for anybody you feel like working for well yeah I mean I, I've been a freelancer well funny enough the timing of this has been very fortunate for me and I've been a freelancer until very recently um, I actually became staff about uh, about four months ago officially became no in fact officially because there's a probationary period so officially became staff about eight weeks ago so i have you know literally like indiana jones i've just rolled underneath that that lowering uh, doorway and reached back and got my hat just in time um so i've been i've been kind of so i've been lucky in that sense but yeah a huge amount of my my colleagues and friends here are, are freelancers and the impact is, is is potentially very very large indeed very large indeed now obviously we also don't know to what extent this will have an impact in terms of the newspapers and media organizations we're working for um, perhaps reducing salaries, perhaps freezing them in the, for the time being, uh, perhaps even saying, "Look, there has to be." I, I don't. I just honestly don't know, and I very much hope not. That said, of course, that in, in a way, the media is one of those industries that does remain essential during a period like this. And so, so can can maintain a business model. That's it. Uh, but but then within that, the sport is of course a, a weird one because actually, sport for a lot of the year, and and this is. Um, in a way, it makes you feel awkward to say this, but it's a reality. Sport is really, really important commercially. Mm. It props up a lot of the, the newspaper. It generates a traffic that the other sections of the paper probably don't. And now sport is the one where you think, oof. So, so I think the Guardian's pages have reduced. Um, as you say, there aren't matches to go to. You can't go and interview a player, although in theory you can talk to them over the phone. It's also the fact that just the, everything that's happening makes sport feel like a kind of a secondary um secondary concern which i suppose it is anyway but it's not because we infuse it with meaning so therefore it does mean something it does matter it does give and you know we would all love to have sport to watch now wouldn't mm. we i mean i think we're seeing now how much it, it means to us all and so I, I don't really know how this is going to go but my feeling to start with at least was that 
in the first week, I felt like it was quite important what was happening in Spain because Spain was uh, at least a couple of weeks um, or so ahead of the UK in terms of the, the progress of the virus, in terms of the response to it. So, for example, we went into lockdown a full two weeks before the UK did, which it's only just done. Um, the fact that you know that first round of games were cancelled in La Liga before, while the Premier League was still playing. So, in that first week, at least, the, the if you like, the novelty and the kind of the idea of this is what's coming to you as well was from Spain. Mm. So, I had that kind of focus of right. I can tell you how this feels, what this is like, or at least try to tell you how this feels and what this is like, and this will come to you. Then, of course, you still got at that stage the news about how long will be will be will will football stop for? What kind of plans are there? What are the contingencies here? What are the things that can be done? How are players feeling about it? All those kind of pieces. And that's still still just about happening. Next, The next wave, I think, of stories will be that clubs are starting to reduce wages for players. And I think that will be seen as quite interesting in terms of how they respond to it, how they come out of the economic impact of this, what the crisis, what kind of crisis this, this creates for perhaps for smaller clubs. And I think, sadly, that some smaller clubs may well be confronted with very significant economic difficulties and possibly even go out of business. But of course, there will be a point at which, right, that's it. We're all on lockdown. We all know this now. There's sort of nowhere to go. Now, Now, what I think sports pages are doing, which is different to news pages, is that they're taking it upon themselves to be, if you like, kind of entertainment content providers. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that there is a social role almost. And again, I don't want this to sound overly blown. I don't want this to sound like we're being self-important because fundamentally we're probably not very important but there is i think a, a sense of kind of taking on the role saying well let's keep people entertained let's give them some stories whether it's a bit of history whether it's this series that we're doing in the garden now of my favorite game um whether it's um you know the espn for example was talking to them the other day we're going to do a series of things about favorite moments about players that are, you know are particularly kind of particularly kind of reached us in some way i suppose you could call them cult heroes this idea of you know players that, that, that mean a lot to us that kind of thing those kind of pieces that people can engage with and can maybe take some joy from and some distraction from even if there isn't work to be work to be done in terms of news but of course we sort of don't really know and we don't know how long this is going to last and, and, and some of it is speculative and, and and it's been it's been awkward in a way because you know we've talked about the league plans for when we go back and you say well yeah but these plans mean nothing in a way because they're in the hands of the virus yeah. they're in the hands of how this progresses and the league recognized that yesterday for the first time publicly by doing a statement that said right there is no date we yeah. go back when the health authorities tell us we can go back and in a way that kind of kills all those other plans because up until that point the president of the league Javier Tebos was saying oh I'm convinced we can finish the season and and this is, you know, we all knew that deep down this was the case, but the fact that they publicly said that leads us, I think, into another phase now where we sort of think, right, well, now there isn't very much to say. And one last point, and I realise I've spoken for far too long already, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the Catalan papers in particular, and the Madrid papers as well a bit, but the Catalan papers in particular have gone really big on transfers over the last six or seven days, which mm. is a nice distraction. Uh, I spoke to an agent yesterday who's... Um, whose response to this rhymes with duck and cough. Uh, and he's just like, look, seriously, nothing is happening. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> Everything's not. Just, just stop it. This just isn't happening now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there you go. Well, but it. if it keeps people entertained for a bit. Well, I think that's the point as well. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned there that was very, very interesting is that somebody with a, a sort of a basis of knowledge like yourself, right? If we go back to the Luis Figo transfer from Barcelona to Real Madrid, right? Uh, this is the kind of thing that the Athletic do. It's the kind of thing that you've been doing for years. It's putting that in a cultural context, the pig's head. We all remember yeah. those things. And to revisit those things, I was thinking this morning, uh, just because I knew that in, at some point we were going to be talking and that kind of thing, about the two sort of generations of Barcelona, about Johan Cruyff originally when he came to Barcelona and the change that he made. Uh, not just as a player, but then later on as a coach, and then all of those who came after. And there's a huge amount of stories to be told about that. But do you find uh, that players and managers and coaches and agents are more willing to talk to you now? Because th- there's no there's no mix zones at the moment. There's no you can't go to the training ground because nobody's training and that kind of thing. So if you send a text to somebody, do you find that they want to be in the media, that they want to talk to you, or are they going, Sid, mate, not now. Let's do this later, kind of thing. There's been a bit of both, actually. Um, and, and also, I mean, it's, it's, I think some players, I don't know if they necessarily want to be in the media, but they've got more time on their hands. Mm. Some of them are more open. Obviously, if you're texting a player directly, it's someone that you've built some degree of relationship with. Not, if not necessarily a huge one, there is something there. Mm. Um, and so, so you're not, it's not a cold call as such. Um, but but it, it, I, I think it depends on the player. It depends on their sense of, of, of their role in all this. And, and I, I know for 
for example, that there are players, because we've had these kind of sort of discussions, there are players who think, look, it's not really my place to be talking about this now. And I know of players, for example, who said, you know, I don't really want to do a piece about about kind of poor me, isn't it hard being locked down? Because the reality is it's not poor me. I live in a big house. I've got a garden, you know. And so, so some players are very conscious of that. And some players are very conscious saying, look, and, and, and obviously you, you can say, well, this can be good for people. And in some cases, the players say, all right, well, if this helps, then then, then let's do it. But but yeah, it's, it, it sort of depends on them. I mean, for example, the piece that I wrote for The Guardian on the first Monday after the weekend that was cancelled, that was supposed to be the weekend of the Seville derby. Mm. And I spoke to Oliver Torres from Sevilla and I spoke to Joel Robles from Betis because I wanted one player from each club to talk about this. Now, I'm going to be honest, neither of those are players that I have a relationship with. Both of those were me speaking to the club, who, of course, I do have a relationship with, and saying, look, obviously, you both know, both clubs, you know that this was a game I was going to go to. You know, it's a game that I've talked about a lot, a game that I really like. And I also think it's a nice way of, 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 of examining or, 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 or um, giving a portrait of, of how much Spanish football is missing, but also what this means for the players. And, and actually, at that point, I was saying to them as, as well, of course, look, this can help maybe, because at that stage, we weren't sure whether people were really going to stay in. Mm. You know, they'd been told to stay, but were they really going to stay in? And obviously, at that point, some players took it upon themselves and some clubs took it upon themselves. But you know what? Players' voices are heard. Yeah. So if we have players who are athletes, who are people who want to be active, saying, stay at home, maybe that, maybe that has an impact. Maybe there is a process of... Uh, being conscientious about this, making people conscientious about it. Maybe there is a process of saying, and in this case, of course, for a British newspaper, saying to, the, to, to people in Britain, you know, this is coming. Be ready for this. Mm. And so in, those, in, the, in the case of those two players, as I say, those aren't players that I have a relationship with now. But in the case of those two players, it was a club saying, OK. And, and I'll be honest, it was me saying to the, the people at the club, look, do you have a player who you happen to know speaks particularly well? I'm not going to ask you for your superstars. Yeah. I'm going to ask you for someone who you think can articulate this. Um, and also, of course, let's be honest here, because we, you know, we can't claim to have the keys to every door. We absolutely do not have the keys to every door. And, and so the other element of this was, and a player who would be prepared to talk, because, mm. you know, a lot of them won't. And so they came back to me. And, and in the case of Joel Robles, I spoke to him on the phone. In the case of Oliver Torres, um, it was, it was a stage removed in that Oliver Torres sent me a series of voice notes yeah. with, you know, with, with his view on things. And so you can build a piece. But yeah, I, I, I don't think there's a definitive answer. To be honest, and and also at this point, I I also don't want to claim, as I say, to to have the keys to to that many doors. You know, to have the key. You know, I I can't go and and and, and say, hey, um, I don't know, Leo Messi, come and have a chat. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, just, it's been a while, mate. Sit yourself down there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And but, Leo, come on, mate. You've got nothing better to do. Yeah, but how do you find the clubs in general, Sid? Because like I'm at the stage now. Um, you and McKenna, the Irish journalist who was living in Brazil, is now in Portugal. You almost go look at if they don't want to talk to us. So what? You know, because most of them don't have anything to say anyway. Do you find the clubs mm. in Spain? helpful do you find the players in spain willing to talk because i notice you know there's certain players in the men's game a there's no point in talking to them because they've nothing to say b they don't want to talk because they're afraid of being caught out i mean our mutual friend Heno goitum uh, me and him are very very friendly mm. now but in the beginning he was very very suspicious as he is of all journalists because everybody gets stitched up zlatan was stitched up by a newspaper here very early in his yeah. career and yeah. that really poisoned his relationship with the press so in general do you find the clubs easy to work with i know you can't you know it isn't so yeah. that every club in spain is the same you know? Well, I mean, well, that's 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 the starting point. That not every club is the same, um, and obviously, not every club is the same for for, for very rational reasons, mm. right? So, so you know, if you go to I don't know, and I'm plucking a name out of the air here, and and, and I don't want anyone to, to read into too much into it because I really am just plucking a, a name out of the air. In fact, let's do one that I really almost don't have a relationship with. Let's say Vitaly, mm. right? If you go to Vitaly, that press officer that you're contacting hasn't got a million people on his back. Yeah. You go to, and his players haven't got a million requests. You go to Real Madrid, and of course the situation is totally different. Mm. Also, it may well be, and again, um, you know, you go to Levante or Leganes, they may well feel actually, you know what, it's not a bad thing for the media to be talking about us. And we could do with this, and this mm. exposure is good. But a club like Real Madrid doesn't need us. You know, it's yeah. not, it's not, in, it's not interested in, in, in us. Um, and so, so it, it, it depends very, very significantly on individual players and on the clubs and on their mentalities. And and so I mean, you, you know, you mentioned Hanuk, who, who's who's a brilliant bloke, by the way, and and, and just 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 really really interesting and, and and very bright and and very aware. And and as you say, someone like him, 
who who I think has the if you like the mindset that means he's the kind of person not that not only is interesting for us as journalists to talk to, but the kind of person who probably finds it quite interesting talking to us too, mm. who feels that this isn't entirely one way and that there is something there to be said all that conversation. But even he's perhaps as you say, to start with might think, well, I don't want to put myself in this position. And, and frankly, the, the, the very, very few, and, and you know, make no bones about this, the very few players that I would genuinely consider friends, mm. quite often they will ask me, you know, let, maybe they get requested an interview request from someone. So, do you know him? What's he like? Is he all right? Can, mm. can he be trusted? Yeah. And, and of course, I'm always very, very reluctant to ever say don't trust a journalist because yeah. I, think, I, I, think, I think our industry and I think the world is a better place if we do trust journalists. But of course, there are some that you, you know, and players are careful about that. And I know, for example, of players who've lied through their teeth, or not just players, lied through their teeth during an interview. And you read it after and think, you so and so. And of course, I don't doubt for a minute that I've been lied to. I don't doubt for a minute that I've been used. I don't doubt for a minute that players have um, done interviews at, at, at particular moments when they wouldn't have done them at other particular moments because. They've had a reason for it. Maybe mm. they want to be back in the public eye. Maybe they want a transfer. Maybe they're trying to put some pressure on their club. Maybe, you know, all those kind of things. Um, and, and, and it's, yeah, it's awkward. But, but to take it directly to the clubs, it, as I say, it depends on the clubs. And also, in many cases, it depends on the press officer himself or herself, mm. right? So I'm going to give you an example without naming the club for obvious reasons, which will become very clear. A mate of mine said, said officer from said club is such an arsehole. He's so arrogant. He thinks his club is big. He thinks his club is as big as Madrid and Barcelona, and they're absolutely not. And he treats us as if, like, you know, why would we bother doing anything with you, right? And this is probably one of the, certainly the two or three press officers that I get on the best with. Someone who I genuinely will go and have a drink with. Someone I will, you know, I will, I will, I've messaged during this crisis to see how he is, not to ask if I can do an interview. Yeah, yeah. Those kind of things. And someone who has always been fantastically helpful to me, whether it's things like helping out with a piece of information that I haven't got, which obviously is a press officer's job, so he should be helpful with that. But things like, yeah, this player really doesn't want to do the interview, but you know what? I'm going to lean on him so that he mm. does, because I'm going to tell him that it's worthwhile talking to the Guardian, because you'll do a good job, because you'll do it right, because you'll listen to him, because you'll put it in the correct context. And obviously, this is something that builds up over a lot of years. Mm. But by the way, you only need to cock it up once and those shutters come down again. <laughs> this is the problem. Like, but I'm just wondering then that, you know, the, the, the friend who asked you or who said, you know, had this negative impression of the press officer, was that because of something he or she had done or written about that club or that kind of thing? Why did no. he... It wasn't. It no, just... I, I think it was because it was someone who was trying to do something with that club for the first time. Yeah. And perhaps because there wasn't a relationship built. So he just encountered someone who was cautious, mm. who was saying, no, we can't do that. No, we wouldn't do that. And someone who was saying, well, if you're going to do this, you better put it there and there and there. And if you're going to do that, oh, well, I, I wouldn't do that unless it's, you know, and, and unless it's, I don't know, for argument's sake, well, where's this going to go? Who's going to read this? Those kind of things that actually a press officer is obliged to ask up to a point. Exactly. Yeah. Because a, play, a press officer is, 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 the, is the gate master, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and obviously, that's a reality, and it's an uncomfortable one. And it does, it does put us in that position where we say, to what extent are you playing their game for them? And to what extent should you actually have a bad relationship with press officers? Mm. Is it your job? To, but then, of course, remember that football is not like government. No, these exactly. are not people we're these are not people we're holding to account in the same way, mm. right? So, so I mean, and, and I've had this conversation lots of times with my dad, who who who, who I you know I always think and obviously everyone says this about their dad, but I always think my dad is very very wise, very sensible, very very aware of these kind of things. And he he'll often say to me, he's also very politically um, um, conscious, my dad, and, mm. and, and 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 he will often say, yeah, but you know, you are not in a position. He said, you might make a mistake sometime. You might write anything sometime where. Maybe you're a bit too nice to that player. Yeah. Maybe you didn't challenge a player on something he's done or said or whatever it may be. But but bear in mind that this player isn't standing for election. This player isn't trying to make millions of pounds out of a business that that, that you know that exploits people. I suppose indirectly, maybe through sportswear companies and so on. Possibly that you know you could argue that. Mm. But but it's, you know you're not you don't have that same level. You have a level of authority, moral moral obligation to tell the truth hmm. to treat things well to ask good questions to write a good story but you don't have that if you like that kind of ethical crusade obligation if you like you yeah. know and, and so and so sports journalism is, is 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 slightly different in that sense and so it's important but i think i think you know we are 
and this sounds like a cop out now, and I realise like, I'm starting to sound like I'm, I'm justifying, you know, you know, it's a cop out. We don't have to do anything. But it doesn't matter. But mm-hmm. there is an element of truth in that. But but I don't. I'm not sure I entirely disagree with you or agree with you, right? Because if you take the press officers being the representative of the club, they want something. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a press officer, somebody who deals with the press, right? So the yes. thing is to get your needs and my needs as journalists and their needs as a club to get their word out and that kind of thing. And I know, I'm going to be talking to people today about the Olympics and that kind of thing, and I know that there are people protecting sponsorship agreements, protecting, you know, of the course. ability of their athletes to make money. I get that, right? And they also get that I have, you know, through one of the news agencies I work for, I have an absolutely massive platform Platform, which is important to them and the thing is to strike the balance there and to never to never consciously allow ourselves to be exploited and to never consciously exploit them either you know so it's that yeah situation i think where, that's right yeah absolutely y- and, and also this, this this is seen this is seen for example in a situation where maybe i mean obviously again it's different with footballers than, than, than for example if you're talking as i imagine you have over the last few days with people at the british olympic committee or people mm. at the international olympic committee or people in the organizing team now those people i think probably there is a certain responsibility to hold them to account more than maybe the athlete who could be going to the olympics yeah, of course but but at the same time if you've got that athlete who says um look i don't want to talk about that then 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 you're automatically feeling uneasy now i'll give you an example the other day i spoke to to sal Niguez about this this movement that he's um, putting together because of the coronavirus trying to help businesses onto their feet mm. and and the, there was a discussion on the phone. He said, look, do you, do you, would you like to talk to... So I was talking to someone who works with Sal. Would you like to talk to Sal about it? I said, yeah, I would. Great, that'd be, that'd be really good because it's a really interesting little story. And of course, then you get Sal on the phone. You're thinking, well, I've got an interview with Sal now. I said, but you haven't got an interview with Sal. You're talking to him about this project. Mm. And so, so obviously, I'm not going to say, ah, oh, tell me about Anfield. And wasn't it great being in Liverpool? Or, or, you know, because... Not because I'm saying, okay, here's an agreement here that we only talk about what you want to talk about, but because I've come into this to ask you about something in particular. So let's talk about that something in particular. But it is true that there are times of interviews when you feel like, "Mm, I wonder if people are going to say, and I don't think I've ever had anyone say to me, we can only do this interview. Or at least I don't think I've ever had anyone say this to me and me follow it through. Mm. (laughs) That's a slightly different thing. We can only do this interview (laughs) if if you don't ask about this. Yeah. now, obviously, you might ask in different ways. You might not get the response you want, but you ask. And that's another thing, by the way. Here's another thing, and I've, I've had this quite often, that people have said, why didn't you ask so-and-so player about so-and-so thing that happened? And um, there is sometimes, and again, there's a, at the risk of this sounding flippant, um, sometimes I don't think people realise that just because it's not in the piece doesn't mean I didn't ask. Exactly, yeah. Like maybe, maybe I asked, and the response was actually so uninteresting or so, you know, wasn't offering anything new, or maybe the player did close down on that, that it didn't go in because, because to be honest, it wasn't worth it. And by the way, you know, and you mentioned earlier um, the, the, the Athletic, the Athletic have gone very long form, but of course most newspapers are still still quite reductive in the amount of space they'll give you. You know, if I yeah. talk to someone, and, but this is the biggest, probably the biggest problem I have because as as you can tell and as anyone who listens to this will be able to tell I talk a lot and I talk a lot I also write a lot Mm. so if I go and do an interview with a player and I get given good time and I do the transcript that transcript might be 10,000 words long I'm lucky if I'm getting 1500 words in a newspaper and so a lot of stuff doesn't go in I mean, I think the limit for the the agency that I work a lot for at the moment is 400 words. If you're going to write more than 400 well, you words... You're not getting anything in, are you? Are no, you? That's a, I mean, half the time, you know, there's so much stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor, you go, you know, and sometimes you go back to it, you know, for another piece or whatever. Well, I'm glad you said that because I don't know about you, I do this. I always keep the transcripts. I'll never delete that transcript because there might be something that's said that at a later date, and so long as you use it in context and you're not trying to claim that they've just said it because obviously people's opinions change in the context in which they say things change. But there's a lot of stuff that you go back to. Like, oh, you know, a, 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 I don't know, for argument's sake, um, a manager goes to England who was working in Spain and you interviewed him once. Mm. And maybe you only got a thousand words in the paper then, but you've got 7,000 words sitting around yeah, exactly. in which he explains his methods. So you can go back to that. And that's, that, I mean, that's happened with me with, with lots of people in, in, who've gone to England, in fact, you know, Pepe Mel, it's happened with Javi Gracia, it's happened with Kike Sanchez Flores, people where you go, I've got material on these guys. 
from some other time, but it gives a great insight as to, as to who this person is. I think it's always a good idea just to protect yourself as well. I've had um, a very few incidents have, have I ever been accused of misquoting somebody, but I keep all the tapes, like every single one. Yeah. And if somebody goes back and something goes into an article, and it's often, um, I, I work a lot with mixed martial arts and that kind of thing, so you would be dealing with relatively inexperienced athletes who are coming into a situation and a microphone gets put in front of them and I try to tell them, treat it like a hand grenade, you know? And on occasion you'll actually yeah. say to somebody, look, are you sure you want to say that right now? Oh, you know? I've done that lots of times. And, and yeah. it's just, now, you know, but if they don't take that advice then, oh, I'm sorry, you know? Absolutely, but I, and I think but I think as well, by the way, I, I think, I think um, I've done that and, and I also think that I, I know some people would say to me, no, if they've said it, you should you should write it. End of story. But I think I, I personally think there is a responsibility, if only on a human or personal level, to not only reflect what they've said, but also reflect what they wanted to say. Yeah. Right. I mean, God knows if, if everything I'd ever said was 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 kind of put up in a you know in a in a con- concentrated version of all the stupid things this man said. I mean, we you know we it, no, none it, of us so, have come out looking so, good. <laughs> yeah, and so there are times. There are times when 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 I'll go for a transcript and there'll be one line and I'll think this sounds a bit, either, maybe this sounds a bit ambiguous yeah. or this sounds very strong. And I'll say to the player, to the player, if I can, or maybe the player's agent or, you know, whoever it is that set up the interview, look, you've said this, is this what you meant? The very, very, just, just that the opportunity, is this what you meant? And obviously most times they say, yes. Yeah. And that's fine. Um, and, and occasionally they'll say, "Well, I, I didn't quite mean it like that." Okay, well, tell me what you did mean. Yeah. And 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 you know we and you know I, I'll, I'll give you a, a very good example. Um, many many years ago, um, I mean this really is a long time ago. Sander Vesterveld was playing for Real Sociedad, and Sander and this was a Real Sociedad team that nearly won the league, and he had a great season, Sander, and, and we ended up becoming quite good friends. And I went to interview him. Um, and I now hang on. I think the first interview might even have been on the phone. And I'm always nervous about phone interviews as well because I always think, what if I've noted this down wrong? What if it, you know, what if the sound quality is not good or whatever? But basically, he did this interview in which he really went for Gerard Houllier, and it was the first time he'd had a go at Gerard Houllier, who clearly he had been storing up this disappointment at the way things had ended at Liverpool for a very long time. And I hadn't gone gone with the idea of interviewing about Liverpool. I'd gone with the idea of let's talk about San Sebastian, playing for Real Sociedad, this great team and all the rest of it. But he'd really gone for Julio. And he'd gone and he slightly he'd you know, he'd gone in a in, in a way that he was really, really, really sort of, you know, laying it on. <laughs> and and I did I did the transcript and I wasn't in a hurry to publish it, which helps obviously, because it means you've got a bit of breathing room. And I contacted him and I said, mate, this is really, really strong. And knowing that you, knowing that you, um, you know, that, that you were talking, and I think, I can't, I think the first interview was on the phone. The reason I say first interview, you'll find out why in a minute. I said, knowing that you were, that you were, you were sort of angry about it and all the rest of it, then, then, you, you know, I, I'd, I'd like you to see your words in black and white yeah. and be sure that you're happy with them. And, and, and he was like, OK, OK, well, we're playing in Madrid next week. And I think they were playing at the Calderon, but it doesn't really matter. Come to the team hotel and, and we can talk through it. And I went to the team hotel. And I, I basically put a piece of paper in front of him and said, this is the, this is the transcript. And this is, this is where I, I'm, I'm sort of looking at it at the moment, where I would probably take it once I start to write this up. And he sat there, with, even with a pen, and he made it stronger, not weaker. <laughs> and... and, and 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 because he was so convinced that right no actually I want to say this this is right and and so obviously look I, I say this as an example that I remember really well because I got an even stronger interview from it but I, I felt like it was a responsibility to him mm. to not allow one moment of him losing his head to 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 kind of you know to kind of kick off and I also I, I, I don't know about you and you said mentioned the, the misquoting I, I sometimes feel a responsibility to the people I've interviewed not when I've misquoted them because I, I would like to think I never have. Mm. Although, obviously, when you're talking to someone in a foreign language and you're translating it back, there's always that slight risk of, yeah. of, of a shift in nuance. Um, not a mistranslation, but a shift in nuance or a shift in weight. Mm. And I'm very, very, very careful about translations. And I actually think in truth, and this is a, a sort of, a, if you like, a dirty little secret, I think in truth, sometimes when you translate someone from a foreign language into English, they can sound even more eloquent. At times, it makes them sound even better than they really are, mm. um, just because of the way that they've expressed themselves is different and it doesn't sound quite the same as, as other people do. Mm. Um, 
but I sometimes feel a responsibility towards sports people. And, and actually, the latest was was was, was probably Tony Duggan at uh, Atletico Madrid's women's team. Yeah. When people read it back and they interpret the words in a way that you think, but that's not what they meant. Yeah. And I thought I'd expressed it well, but if you're reading it like that, maybe I haven't expressed it well. Um, and and so I've quite often defended athletes or footballers, obviously mostly, mm. for what they've said because the if you like, the pickup of it and the misinterpretation of it has been in my piece. And I said, well, hang on, don't attack them for that. Yeah, that's you know, on because, me. Because I'm not sure that they meant it in quite that way. Hmm. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you have to be very, very careful. I find, like, I speak Swedish fluently and I live here, right? But I also understand Norwegian, but I am very, very careful because I've never lived in Norway. I've traveled there a lot. I spent a lot of time working with the national women's team, but I'm very, very careful with some of the things that they say, you know, these idioms and this kind of thing. Uh, especially yeah, that, that young people say and you go hang on a second I'm not taking that you know and I try to record if we're going to write anything about it I try to record all the conversations and there are endless hours of whatsapps of stuff explaining stuff to me you know things like that and for the yeah. most part I just ignore them because, you know I just drop them out completely because I don't feel comfortable sort of you know translating that or using that and sometimes there isn't a great way to translate it either so you just let it go or you ask them to speak to you in English or whatever but it really is a sort of a minefield because if you get yeah. into that thing uh, it happened between uh, Malmo FF and Celtic in the Champions League qualifiers a couple of years ago where um, Auger Hård either who was uh, he's just um, left the Danish job or at least he will do at the end of uh, July I think it is he sort of talked he and the goalkeeper Johan Wieland had talked about uh, what the direct translation is uh, pig football Grease football, right? And that's just, you know, roll up your sleeves, kick them, that kind of thing. That's what it means. He wasn't calling the Celtic players pigs, right? But yeah. that gets onto Sky Sports News and that kind of thing, and it becomes an absolutely massive thing. And it's kind of like, you know, fighting in a nightclub, where I'm standing in the middle there going, hang on a second, that wasn't what was meant. Everybody's going, shut the fuck up, we want to have a Barney over yeah. this kind of thing. And it gave a yeah. load of sort of tabloid headlines, that kind of thing. But, I, you know, I kind of fear that it damaged Augie, because he went on then to, uh, to manage Denmark against Ireland in about 57 different internationals over three years and I think that you know the the, the the impression of him that was built up was partially to do with those quotes and they just thought oh he's an arsehole because he said this about Celtic you know that kind of thing so it's a kind of a dangerous that's, that's definitely true and and you know look um, there, there are where, where I, I think where we see and also you know words not just words they're a reflection of a culture they're a reflection mm. of an identity they're a reflection of a way that people talk they're, the meaning the meaning if the received meaning maybe is the same, the intended meaning of the, of the transmitter, if you like, of that message is sometimes different. And, yeah. and obviously the, the clearest example of this that, that I've seen and, and, and I've been very much in the, in the middle of it in Spain is, is, is um, a, a lot of the fallout over the, over the allegations of racism. And in particular, of course, we go back to that Luis Aragonés moment with, with um, José Antonio Reyes. Yeah. And, and there's, there's all sorts of... There are all sorts of, and, and you know, I, I, I've actually given up having this argument with people in Britain, mm. um, in a way, because there's a bit of me that thinks, look, we cannot come to the same conclusions here, and you won't, un not necessarily you won't understand, but you won't accept what I'm trying to say, and I will not fully accept what you're trying to say, because we come at it with different levels of un understanding, different different senses of the, of, if you like, the linguistic nuances. Yeah. Of the, we are and, literally and not so, speaking the same language here. Well, exactly. That's it. That's exactly right, yeah. I'm going to ask you one final question, Sid, because I want you to get back here to your joggers and sitting on the couch and scratching away there. If I was to call yeah, David exactly. if I was to call David Beckham now and ask him, what's Sid Lowe like as a bloke, what would he tell me? Well, um, I, I, you know, I, I would have said to you, if you'd asked me this question two weeks ago, I would have said to you, uh, maybe not two weeks ago, maybe a month ago, doesn't really matter, I would have said to you, if you'd said that to David Beckham, he'd have said, who? I was convinced. I was absolutely no convinced of that. But, but David was doing an event um, at a club in England not long ago, and one of the people handling the event was a very, very, very good friend of mine, one of my best mates, uh, who's done an event with Beckham before. Um, and I didn't even know this, and he just messaged me. He just got a WhatsApp message. that says, "David says hello." I said, "What?" He said, <laughs> and then he sent me a picture, and it was him and David Beckham. I was like, oh, fucking hell, how is he? And he said, yeah, he's fine. He said, he said, he said, it's a bit annoying though that every time he sees me, he, he addresses me as Sid mate. Um, so, so, so I was kind of, I mean, that was, I mean, look, this is, this is kind of reflected glory of me, me, me playing, me playing the name dropper here. But I, I must admit, I was, I was quite pleased about that because, because I did sort of think, you know, Beckham's gone. He, he, he won't remember any of us. Um, and, and it was, you know, and I have, as I said, I, I have seen Beckham since he left Madrid. 
I think I've only physically seen him once. Um, and as I said to him, then, you know, you, you don't know, mate, how much you changed all of our lives. <laughs> and, and he was, and, and he was always, David was genuinely always really, really pleasant company, really very likable. Of course, living in a totally different world to, to, to the rest of us. But I, I always found him, I, I, I genuinely really did like covering him. And, and, and I think he, you know, this whole conversation that we're having has been about the media, mm. right? And, and we've, we've kind of come full circle. And I, and, I, and I quite like the fact that you brought up David because it allows us to go back into something that explains, if you like, the starting point for me, which is that when David came here, he was very well aware of our role. Now, of course, he would say, well, he would be. He's the England captain. He's mm. married to Victoria Beckham. You know, he built a, a huge part of his um his wealth, his business empire, and all the rest of it on, on, if you like, on media messaging, on, 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 you know, how to kind of express, um, I don't know really what you'd call it, express an image of himself, no. right? Um, but he really did understand it. And so, so for example, he would always stop and talk to us in the mix zone. Yeah. He would always know that if there's an England game coming up, that after he's played against Osasuna or, you know, or whoever it is, or Numancia, that, yeah, we would ask a couple of questions of Osasuna and Numancia, but then we'd be quickly on to England. Yeah. And he was aware that that was his role. But it, although he wasn't a person who ever said enormously fascinating things, mm. I think the image of him as being dull is, is not fair. I thought he always engaged with us. He did always have things to say. I think he was much, much sharper than people thought. I thought he was aware of the industry around him. But there were elements of the media that, that genuinely, and I think I know the image of, 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 of someone like Beckham and perhaps particular more Victoria than David himself, um, is of kind of manipulating the media. But I know there were elements of the media that he genuinely hated, mm. that he genuinely didn't, that he didn't like living with paparazzi following him around. You know, I, I had conversations with him about some of the tactics they used to try and throw the paparazzi off. I've seen a, a confrontation with him and a paparazzi photographer. He genuinely didn't enjoy that. But he understood that while we were sort of in the game with them, that we had a different role to play. And he was he was pleasant and polite with us. He was interested, uh, not a huge amount, but he was interested at times in what was happening with us. And I remember there being a big argument at a game. I think it was away at Espanol between two journalists, so a game I wasn't actually at. And then at the next game, he came through the mix zone and he saw me and he pulled me aside and he said, what's happened between so-and-so and so-and-so? And Because he, he wanted to know, because he wanted to know what was going on. And, and he... So he was, as I said, I mean, he was hugely important for everything that, 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 that kind of that became of my career, if you like, but also partly because he understood it. And, and you know, it's true that he disappeared at the back end of, of, of that first season because of all the kind of the tabloid allegations that were on the front of the paper, not on the back. But he was another one. He was a footballer who understood that the front of the paper and the back of the paper were not the same thing. Mm. You know, and, and not with me, but I know that with at least one of the big tabloid sports guys, he was talking to that tabloid sports guy even at a time when that same tabloid was destroying him at the other end of the paper. You know, he was still he was still engaging with him. He was still being polite to him. He understood that. And 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 yeah, I've I've, I've got a lot of I've, I've got a lot of time for him. And um, and he was also a very good footballer, um, which has also been partly forgotten. He was he was absolutely brilliant for the first six months. He was absolutely brilliant for the last three or four months. And I would say he was very good in between. I, it's true that there was a normalisation process and the devil tailed a little bit in the middle. But but but. Overall, I think you'd ask around with his fans and they would, they would say they, they really liked him. He had a handy right foot right enough, but for me, his greatest achievement sure, yeah. his, his greatest achievement in football for me was launching the career of a certain Sid Lowe. Sid, thank you so much for talking <laughs> to me today and I hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you. I, I very much hope that David Beckham in his, in his enormous trophy cabinet at home has a medal that's... Well, I got I got onto his, I got onto his wiki page to put it on there now. <laughs> Cheers, pal. <laughs>